Good morning, UVC. Before we hear from our preacher, Joel Brown, this morning, uh, listen to God's word, which comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31. One of the legal experts heard their dispute and saw how well Jesus answered them. He came over and asked him, which commanded is the most important of all? Jesus replied, the most important one is Israel. Listen, our God is the one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You will love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Thanks be to God. Good morning, UVC. Um, so as Shree said, or as Colton said, um, your bulletin may say that Emily is preaching this morning, um, and as talented as Pastor Emily is, uh, she's not going to preach as she's flying back from Washington, D.C., um, so she's called on me to, to fill in, and so I'm going to give it a shot. Um, the truth is, we probably don't need a sermon after John's testimony this morning, and and the marches that happened yesterday. Um, but let's go for it, huh? Uh, let's pray. God, I pray for the souls and the minds and the hearts um, that are here this morning, um, that they would receive a word from you in spite of me. Um, and I pray uh, that Pastor Emily would be forgiving of me if I say something this morning that gets me into trouble. We pray in your name. Amen. So hashtag resist. It's kind of been the theme of the week, at least for me. I don't know about you, but at every turn, this hashtag is what I'm thinking about. Hashtag resist. From confirmation hearings, you know, Jeff Sessions or Rex Tillerson or Lord help us, Betsy DeVos, to the stomach-turning image of the new president with his hand on the Bible at the inauguration, or the preaching, preaching of Robert Jeffress and Jerry Falwell Jr., my reaction has been consistently hashtag resist. Resist racist AGs, resist gropers in chief, Resist unqualified oligarchs from the top educational post. Resist, resist, resist. Resistance was the sermon preached through the pounding of millions, yes, millions of feet against the pavement yesterday and Friday. In Washington, in New York, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, and in some 600 cities around the world. Women and non-gender conforming folks, followed by men, pounded out a homily of resistance that no one could ignore, no matter what lies certain persons conveyed through their press secretaries. In a week that began with MLK celebrations and ended with a march on Washington, Viva la Resistance echoed around the world. 
And so when I sat down to read the text that Emily asked me to preach this morning, um, the one that Sharice just read for us, I had to do a bit of a double take. Because when the scribe asked Jesus about what is the greatest commandment, I half expected Jesus to respond, hashtag resist. (laughs) But no, when the scribe comes to Jesus and asks, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus throws me for a loop by answering not with something totally unexpected, but instead with something so simple, so fundamental, it catches us off guard. Jesus is not perplexed by the question and he doesn't hesitate to answer it. He immediately responds by sharing words that any faithful Jew would have recognized, would have known by heart. He says the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Every child of Israel would know immediately that Jesus was right by answering with this. He was quoting the Shema, which is the first Hebrew sentence that many Jews learn to say. For some of them, it's also their dying words. They were taught since before they could speak to keep these words in their hearts, to recite them, to talk about them, to learn about them in every possible way so that when they were tested in the world, when it got tough, it would be these words that would guide their actions. The Shema is to Jews roughly what the Lord's Prayer is for Christians, but maybe even more so. These words were, the, these words were one with the act of breathing for the faithful Jew, and Jesus was tapping into this fundamental part of their faith and their human experience. But what is surprising is that Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus gives the scribe a longer answer than he expected. Jesus continues talking and says, the second commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Again, the scribe would have recognized these words, familiar with them, from his upbringing, but not as words that are one with the Shema. You see, Jesus takes two commandments and makes them one. The love of God cannot fully exist without the love of neighbor and self. Here, Jesus formulates a new ethic of love, a threefold love which requires that we offer ourselves, our very souls, our very bodies, our minds, our efforts, and our lives for our neighbors. Jesus reinterprets the Shema, the commandment to love, our, to love God above all things with the second one, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, with all of ourselves. To love God is to love your neighbor, Jesus says. It is this combined love commandment that we must now keep in our hearts, that we must recite, that we must talk about, that we must bind and fix and write in every place that is visible. This commandment must be so ingrained within us that our circumstances cannot alter its significance or deter us from loving God always, everywhere, and with everyone. It's powerful stuff, right? This commandment? 
but I need to make a confession. It's taken me a really long time to understand that this is what Jesus meant here. You see, I was brought up in a culture founded on the twin virtues of whiteness and patriarchy. So it's taken me a little longer to get woke to the Jesus love ethic articulated here. You see, this same passage where Jesus pulls no punches in declaring the radicalness of kingdom love, this same passage is used to pacify and quell attempts to challenge the status quo, to upend hierarchies of power and personhood. We, and I mean all of us unwoke white Christians, will admit that the world's not perfect even as we see it through our rose-colored glasses. But the world can be fixed, we believe. And here's where we invoke the greatest commandment. If you're pious enough, and you worship enough, and you feel a certain way about people, treat them nicely in the world. If you do that, then everything will turn out okay. It's a theology of love that is calibrated to produce comfort at every turn, in every instance. If your practice of love makes me feel uncomfortable, it's wrong. But this is a lie. It's not what Jesus preached. It's a mechanism for attaining and maintaining power. So let me take a second, if you'll let me, and say a word to my people for just a minute. Is that okay? White Christian America, it's time to get over ourselves. Our theologies of comfort, wherein we have the need to always feel comfortable, affirmed, to be right, to be safe, they are not of God. In fact, they're roadblocks to the progress of justice, to the work of Christ in this world. We are naive, willfully ignorant of systemic forces that bind and oppress people and in turn privilege and protect us. We know not the love Jesus came preaching as long as we insist on comfort as the necessary outcome of love. No. The love Jesus came declaring is costly, it's dangerous, and it's going to cause some serious, serious discomfort. After all, Jesus-type love leads to a cross, not a couch. Okay, my rant's over. I'll try and get back to preaching. But really, the love Jesus is describing in this instance to love God, to love neighbor, is of a deeper, more enduring, and more disruptive kind than anything I was ever taught in the schools of whiteness and patriarchy. By hearkening back to the Shema, Jesus was very likely playing on Jewish notions of love that are expressed in the Hebrew term chesed. And so I don't spit too much on Colton. I'm just going to say chesed from now on. It's chesed. Um, H-E-S-E-D, if, if you want to get a tattoo, but I would recommend that you talk to one of our biblical scholars, our resident scholars, before you do that. But hesed is translated sometimes simply as love or steadfast love or mercy, but I think it's best conveyed as a notion of radical covenant love. A person who embodies hesed is known as a chesed, one who is faithful to the covenant, and who goes above and beyond what is expected, what is normally required. Many of you probably are familiar with the verse Micah 6, 8. Maybe some people actually have it tattooed, rightly so, I think, on their bodies. 
It says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? It's also kind of the theme of our sermon series right now. But that word that we often translate in there as mercy or kindness, that's hesed. It's the glue that binds the covenant between God and humanity. It's the thing you go to battle for. It's the thing you go to the cross for. Hesed. There's a pastor from Denver. Her name's Nadia Boltz-Weber. She leads a church that's called uh, House of Sinners and Saints, I think. Um, Many people know her as the iconic tattooed Lutheran pastor who causes a lot of trouble. Um, But I think that she gets at this notion of hesed pretty well in a provocative little speech that she gives to people who are considering membership in her church. She tells them, I'm glad you love it here, but at some point I will disappoint you. The church will let you down. Please decide on this side of that happening if, after it happens, you will stick around. Because if you leave, you will miss the way that God's grace comes in and fills the brokenness and the cracks here. And it's too beautiful to miss. Don't miss it. Hesed love. Radical covenant love. Don't miss it. So what does this radical covenant love look like in practice? Well, it can look like a lot of things, I think, but let me just posit one right now, one for right now. Sometimes it looks like resistance. Let me tell you why. Hesed or covenant love, the kind of thing Jesus is talking about in the greatest commandment, it begins and it ends with God, with who God is and what God does. Remember, to love God is to love our neighbor as God loves. And how does God love? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 82, I think, is right when they say that in God's eye, love is calling the unjust to account for their lies, defending the weak and the fatherless, upholding the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescuing the weak and the needy. It's pretty well parsed out how it is that God loves. And the goal in all of this is not simply that our feelings change or or that I do new things or better things, but it is that our very wills are transformed. To love God is to desire the very things that God desires, to will what God wills. And God is pretty clear about that which God desires, and it looks a lot like a deep commitment to the well-being of those who are our neighbors. To love God is to desire the safety, the security, and the flourishing of our neighbors just as we hope for it ourselves. So, sometimes, when tyranny gets a foothold and looks to make a grab for power by making stepping stones of our neighbors, Jesus' love compels us to resistance. Sometimes, loving God and the other gets a little dirty. It gets, dare I say, a little nasty. Doing the God thing can get us branded as troublemakers and rule breakers and rebels. And sometimes, my first reading of this text, the one I shared at the beginning, is right after all. When the scribe asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment, I was right to read hashtag resist in his answer. 
To love God is to love my neighbor with a deep, enduring, radical, hesed love of God. And this week, that meant resistance. Now, this resistance can take different forms, and we should explore the many various ways that it can be expressed. But as people of faith, we have a special prerogative to speak truth to power in the form of moral resistance. Moral resistance. It's Rosa Parks sitting on a bus because she believed that black bodies are as deserving of rest as white ones. It's Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the confessing church in Nazi Germany who observed the horrors of Kristallnacht and decided that they could not in good conscience call themselves Christians unless they mounted a resistance to the rise of Hitler and Nazism. It's what Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called creative suffering, turning what is meant to oppress and bind into tools of resistance, turning despair into hope, because after all, as Star Wars reminds us, rebellions are built on hope. So that like Valerie Carr, a Sikh civil rights leader, we can even reimagine the history of America so that it serves the ends of justice, of equality, of a more perfect union. So that we can say too, what if this darkness we're experiencing now is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our America is not dead, but a country waiting to be born? And what does the midwife tell the birthing mother to do first? Breathe. And then? Push. Because if we don't push, we will die. And the child will not see the light of day. And so today, I'm telling us to breathe in. And tomorrow, when we get out of bed, we're going to push. Push in love, in resistance. We must be about this task of resistance. Do you know why? Because at noon on Friday, the pages for civil rights and LGBT rights disappeared from the White House website. Because a white nationalist wrote an America First inaugural address delivered by a morally vacuous puppet POTUS. Because black bodies are still seen as criminal. Brown bodies are still seen as illegal. Trans bodies are still seen as immoral. Indigenous bodies are still seen as savage. The bodies of women and girls are still seen as somebody else's property. We must teach each other to see these bodies as brothers and sisters, as we sang this morning. Otherwise, it's too easy to bully them, to rape them, to incarcerate them, to kill them, to pass policies that neglect them. And as long as we let that happen, we cannot love God. To love God is to love our neighbor. So, hashtag resist. Persist in your resistance. Resistance is not futile. Resistance is essential now more than ever. Remember that this Everything that's going on is not normal. 
Gather your pots and your pans, bang on them. Bang on them like hell. Find a pair of shoes and march. March as if your life depends on it because your neighbor's life most certainly does. And finally, in the words of Molly Ivins, keep fighting for justice and freedom, beloveds, but don't forget to have fun doing it. Be outrageous. Rejoice in all the oddities that freedom can produce. And when you get through celebrating the sheer joy of a good fight, be sure to tell those who come after how much fun it was. Let's pray. Oh God, we know we ought to pray for our new president. And this is perhaps true. Just as we prayed for all of his predecessors. But this morning, we pray for those he has announced, overtly or in code words, as the victims of his policies immigrants and refugees, Muslims, the poor, racial and sexual minorities, women and girls. Though we must speak of him and his followers with respect whenever possible, we will also call them to truth-telling, which will mean the radical reworking of most of what they say, just as we, are, just as we ourselves must also be truthful. We know that you, God, are no respecter of persons. You are not an American patriot, and a narrow beggar-thy-neighbor patriotism is not a Christian virtue, but a sickening tangle of the greatest vices. Respect for authority is not an end in itself, but at best, a gateway to justice and love. So for those of us who grieve this morning, comfort us and hear our prayer that our worst fears do not come to pass. Transform our wills that we would grow to desire you and desire what you desire in this world. Transform the heart of our nation Open our eyes and awaken our minds. In the name of our brother and friend Jesus, we pray. Amen.